Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I want, to t- I want to start off this morning just by reminding us of some things in our lives um, as we approach God's Word that we have to be reminded again and again of uh, how we can approach it to make it useful to us. And there are ways in which we can go blindly through life, blindly through our activity of uh, attending church, hearing preaching, even doing our daily Bible reading, and not have any benefit from it. And it's true also that when we actually give ourselves an application to reading God's Word, we always find things in it that we don't like. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, when I read God's Word, sometimes I find that I'm impatient with my spiritual ancestors because I want them to be something better and they're not. And you read about somebody and he does a certain or she does a certain thing and you just kind of go, ugh. Did they really do that? You think about, I'll just name some people and you think about, you think about some things, right? They're in God's word for all eternity recorded. Abraham, Samson, David, the Apostle Peter, John Mark. All right, and if you want some ladies to be represented, Miriam, Rachel, Martha. You think of something Martha did that isn't necessarily positive? Right? Remember? It's recorded of her that she preferred to be busy than to listen to Jesus. Iodia and Syntyche, right? All, all through the, the, the uh, generations ever after, that's recorded. And you think about it, what is it that we don't like about it? Well, we want, you know, we live in a day where we watch superhero movies all the time and we want our Bible uh, heroes to be superheroes. And they're not. Why do we want them to be superheroes? I think because we aspire to being superheroes. We don't like the fact about who we are, and so when we read about who they are, it just annoys us as it reminds us so much of who we are, right? Another thing that we don't like are, are God's judgments. And so as we read the Bible and we read what God does and says and commands, then we become... Uh, wickedly questioners of his goodness and we question God that way there are other things that we we read in the Bible that bother us because we because they violate our sense of right right Uh, Mike Bowles who most of you know my friend uh, he has a saying and his saying is that ain't right 
But for Mike Bowles, he has this list of things that are ain't rights, right? And so I've threatened to get him a t-shirt that says that ain't right or something, you know? But we have this and we read the Bible. We come at the Bible and we just think that's not right, that's not right. And uh, we want to know things that the Bible doesn't give us answers to, so we say that isn't right, that we don't know them even though the Bible says that God has the secret things and they belong to him. And the things he wills to reveal to us, he reveals. Right? We have, uh, we think we have a right to edit out the things we don't like. You guys know that Thomas Jefferson actually edited out the Bible. And he created his own Bible. And it's said that he took a penknife and he cut out sections. He cut out all the miracles, cut out all the things that the apostles said that he didn't like. Um, he, he, says, he says that he removed, quote, the corruption of the schismatizing followers. This is what he said he did. Now you think that's awful, don't you? But when you read the Bible, you think about things that you don't like, and rather than getting your penknife out and cutting them out, you just kind of cut them out in your brain. You relegate them to a place. I don't like that. And that's what you do. That's what we do. And we do all this because our hearts are wicked. We have... Uh, we all have this common, vulgar corruption in our hearts. Every one of us. And so if we find something in God's Word that we don't like, is it difficult for us to find other people who don't like it? It's very easy, isn't it? We can easily find someone else that doesn't like it. In fact, we could actually start a group of people that believe and follow someone who is able to teach in such a way as to take that specific thing, that particular thing, and it usually is the exact thing that is our sin. We find someone who can take that exact thing and can explain it away in such a way as that we don't have to deal with its weight on our conscience. And it's over there. We've, we've taken care of it. It's been removed. It's been cut out. The heart is deceitful more than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have to read our Bibles knowing who we are. The more we read them knowing who we are, the more that we understand in them that will bring us to sanctification. And this continues all through God's Word. Now this morning we're going to read Psalm 35. And as we, as we uh, go through the Psalms, um, what we find out is that the Psalms are full of things like this. The Psalms are full of things that we either don't, don't want to understand applied to us. Uh, often with the Psalms, we read it and we think, oh, that's the Psalms for back then. Right last week, Pastor Bailey talked about dispensationalism, and it's like uh, 
we're all dispensationalists at times with the Psalms. So that's old stuff. That's Psalms. That's for back then. We're, we, we appoint it a certain time, and then we say, now nah, it's all gone. But here we are with the Psalms, and we're going to hear some things that are uncomfortable to us and difficult for us, as we will in every Psalm. And yet we have to come at it realizing that we all have corrupt hearts. We, we have this in common. If you think your heart's special, I'm sorry. You're just, just like me, right? We have this, these corrupt hearts, and we have to come at God's Word and understand it as the Holy Spirit would have us understand it with hearts that are renewed. So Psalm 35, a Psalm of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them, away, them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among the mighty throng. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously, for they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They opened their mouth wide against me. They said, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it! You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my Lord, and my, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. and Do not let them rejoice over me. 
Do not let them say in their heart, Aha! Our desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a psalm of David. And he starts off by saying, contend with those who contend with me. Well, David was contending. We know that David contended for a long time with King Saul. There was a long time he was fighting and he was chased by Saul. And most commentaries, commentators think this is who David is writing about. He doesn't say explicitly, but most think that this is who he's writing about. Saul is contending against him. Saul has amassed enemies against David. And so as we look at this, we think, okay, it's easy for us. We're uh, we're reading the Old Testament. We're reading about an old dead guy. And we've read this account over and over again. But we don't think of it as an account because thinking of it as an account is a little bit too, too close to it having relevance today. We want to think of it as a story. We want to think of David's life as a story, not as an account. If we think of it as an account, you see the difference between the two? I can think of a story, and a story just not that big of a deal for me, but an account is a little bit more because it has historicity. In stories in our lives, we kind of lose stories into the realm of uh, fiction. It's, 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 a, it's blurred a little bit, right? But we're reading an account, and for us, that should make us think true, and true through ages. And so here we have a psalm, and it's a prayer of God's people, and David has brought it, and David is singing it, and as he wrote it, in the context likely of Saul, he's asking about the one who contends with him. And we read it and we think, we ought to think, who contends with me? Does anyone contend with me? Have you ever prayed a a prayer where you were asking the question, Lord, where are you? Where you were beseeching God Would you please contend against those who contend with me? Is that a kind of a common thing? Okay, this is for us to think about for a minute, all right? Do we have someone who contends against us? Now, we could answer that and we could say, well, yeah. Uh, We have lots of people who contend against us. In my family, when we get together for, for uh, for the events, Christmas and birthdays and things like that. There's a lot of tension, and there are a lot of people who aren't happy with me. And so you have to ask the question, well, why aren't they happy with you? Are you unpleasant? Are you unpleasant to be with? Um, I can testify that occasionally at family gatherings, I'm unpleasant. No amen from my son and daughter-in-law. 
my daughter-in-law is probably going to go, want to say it louder even than my son. But we're unpleasant. And there can be people who would contend with us for that. We could do people wrong and they could contend with us. We could sin against them. We, could be in, we can be intentionally pro provocative, you know, going to uh, Berkeley to a free speech rally wearing a MAGA hat, right? It's not something you want to do unless you want to be provocative intentionally, but we might do that. Many of us are intentionally provocative. We love to provoke people, right? Do we have someone fighting against us? David says, he's, he's, he's contending with me. He says, take hold of the buckler and shield. A buckler is like another kind of defensive thing, okay? A shield and a buckler. Take hold of them. Rise up for my help. Take the offensive weapons against those who pursue me. Let them be ashamed, dishonored. Turn them back. Humiliate them. Let them be like chaff in front of the wind, being driven on by the angel of the Lord. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel pursuing them. Right? And so we think as he prays this, that's uh, not really something we probably feel comfortable going to God and asking for our family after we've been in absolute pain during the Christmas gathering and they've contended against us, are you going to go to the Lord and say, bring out the shield and buckler. Bring out the spear. Drive them away. No. Now, we have to look a little further. We have to go on to verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon them unawares, and let that net which he hid catch himself into the very destruction, let him fall. Without cause, without cause. Now, if you think about this for a second, was David just the victim of arbitrary assault? Right? Is that what happened? He says without cause. You know, is, is there somebody with a bumper sticker that says, uh, uh, do random acts of cruelty, right? We don't have without cause in that way. I mean, it may happen, but we would usually think of a person like that as being insane, right? An insane person might just, with no apparent connection at all to someone, do something do something wicked to them. But David says they're doing this without cause. What is meant? Well, what is meant is that they're doing it without a just cause. Saul hated David, but he had no just cause for hating him. He hated David, but he had no just cause. And so Calvin says Saul was the enemy of David, and he was so so long that he got his entire court to conspire against David. Everyone was coming after David with Saul. It was mob, it was kind of a mob effect. And very few who wouldn't 
honor and protect David. And if they did, they lost their lives. So there was no just cause for Saul's hatred of David. What was David to Saul? Well, Saul knew about David's anointing. Saul knew David was going to be king, but David didn't posture himself as a usurper. David did everything he could to placate Saul's anger and to submit himself to Saul. So what was it that Saul hated about David? Well, I think Saul hated, and we'll see it at the end of the chapter, I think Saul hated David simply because David was the one that the Lord favored. David was favored by the Lord, and so Saul hated him. Saul knew that God's favor had been taken off of him and had been placed on another. And it was something he could not stand. He even told Jonathan, he said, Jonathan, you can't like this guy. Don't you realize he's taking your throne? Saul knew that David had the favor of the Lord. And he hated it. Just like, just like those who knew Jesus. Um, Jesus says in, in John 15, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would, have, they would not have sinned. But now that they have both seen and hated me, and my father as well, now they have both seen and hated me, and my father as well. They have done this to fulfill the word which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated Jesus because he was the one on whom rested the approval of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All of his actions burned them. They didn't have a just cause. He didn't provoke them with sin like we might do. People who hate without cause today hate because they recognize the favored, those favored by God. You know, we're not favored by God because we wear a cross necklace. That's not how people know we're favored by God. We're not favored by God because we, we uh, call ourselves Christ followers. You guys know about this? It's the new trend, right? Uh, I was at a meeting in, in Indianapolis uh, two or three months ago, and people were in, there was about 16 people in the room, they were introducing themselves, and two of the people introduced themselves as Christ followers. And I thought, I've never heard that before. I mean, Christian, yes, which essentially means Christ follower, right? But I've never, but it was obvious that there was some kind of conspiracy. There was something that they knew about saying Christ follower that I didn't know. So I came back and I asked the staff, and they said, well, yeah, that's the new thing. So then I started reading about it, and you realize that this is a, this is a new way that people talk to, about themselves as Christians because they want to be disassociated with the term Christian, which of course means Christ follower. And so they don't want to be associated with that because so much negative baggage with Christians. You know, they're opposed to abortion and they're opposed to gay marriage, right? There's so many no's associated with 
Christian, and so they've started calling themselves Christ followers. We're different. And, I've, and, I, and I did some reading on church websites, and you read the church's websites about us, right? They talk about us. And these are big, big churches, which, of course, actually would be more likely the case. They'll say in their websites, they'll say, we are not seeking, they call themselves Christ followers, we are not seeking to be known by, we're seeking to be known by what we are for and not what we're against. They actually say it that way. We want to be known by what we're for and not by what we're against. Now, when you hear somebody say this, I want you to have the heebie-jeebies. Okay? Because that's a clear tell that they are not willing to bear the reproach of Christ with him. They just want to, they just want to be seen as reasonable in the world. And what I'm proposing and what the scripture I think clearly proposes in Psalm 35 is that those who have the approval of God resting upon them, it is evident in their lives, not just in what they say, but in what they do and who they are. And so you can call yourself whatever you want, right? You could say it in Swahili to try to hide, but you're not going to be able to hide. You're either going to identify with Christ and with his god godliness and be godly yourself, or you're going to try to escape it. God's abiding favor is recognized in his people by their lives, by their godliness. He says in 2 Timothy, indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When we identify with Christ in our lives, in our actions, we will be treated like Christ. We will have those who oppose us without a cause, without just cause. They hated Jesus without a cause, and they will hate us if they see in us the abiding favor of God. He says they dig a pit. And uh, I want you to think about this. It takes a lot of work to dig a pit. Anybody ever dig a pit? <laughs> Even a little pit? There's a lot of work involved in it. And so these guys are digging a pit. Now I know in the psalm here, it's not a literal pit. It's kind of a metaphorical pit, right? But still, a lot of work. Because even building cases against people and laying snares for them verbally and in relationship and creating an environment where, where they will be trapped and fall, it takes a lot of work. Was it, was it you, Pastor Halsey, that preached about Haman or mentioned Haman in your sermon and he said that they built the gallows Haman built the gallows 70 feet tall for for uh, Mordecai right okay now I want you to look at the ceiling you won't be able to see very well behind the lights you see the deck the actual bottom of the roof up through the joists you see it that's only 35 feet you're only halfway to the top of Haman's gallow Okay, what kind of work will people who hate those favored by God go to? What kind of work will they do to dig a pit? Do you understand? And it, it hasn't changed. People are still digging pits and building gallows. 
They may be metaphorical, but they are, they're still the same, and they take a lot of work. And those who hate, those who are favored by God will work hard to do it. Verse 9. The psalmist says, I, I'll rejoice. I will exult in my God's salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him, who is, who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. You know, if you think about David, you think about somebody who, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And here David is saying, you've delivered me from somebody who's too strong for me. And you think about that today and that, that is, the, that is the story of God's people. You know, think about Mordecai. You had Haman who was a big shot. I mean, a really, really big, big shot. And wealthy. And had the resources to build a gallows 70 feet tall. And you had Mordecai who was just a, a nobody. But he was the one favored by God. And you have David, who was a shepherd boy, and Saul, who was the king of Israel, and he's pursuing him, and he's chasing him, and he's amassed everybody. I mean, David goes over here, Saul brings the whole bunch of army over here to find him. David goes over there, Saul brings the whole bunch of army over there, but Saul gets interrupted because there's a war over here, but I'll leave David for a while, and I go over here. Saul was too big for him. Too big for him. Even his armor, I would guess that when David was a grown man, Saul's armor would have still been too big for David. Saul had a reputation being head and shoulders taller than everybody else, right? And so Saul's pursuing him, but Saul's too big. And what is different about people who pursue those favored by God today? Nothing's different. Can you think of anybody who pursues you, that bothers you, that isn't bigger than you? <laughs> of course not. All of our enemies have resources and, and time and lives that they devote to destroying us. And they're all bigger than we are. And David says, well, no, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Because my soul shall re rejoice in the Lord and exult in his salvation. While David wasn't strong enough for the assignment, God was. And yet, oftentimes, we try to meet force with force, don't we? Rather than letting God do this, we decide we're going to get bigger ourselves. We're going to bulk up. We're going to be strong. We're going to learn how, we're going to get rhetoric down so that when we're in a situation, our rhetoric is going to be zippy. And we're going to give responses that are incisive. And everybody's going to be ashamed because of how we respond. But that's not what David said. He said, set your angel after them and let them be ashamed. Set your angel at them and make them flee. You see? 
verse 11 and, uh, through 16, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. Well, listen. If you go to a courthouse, you would see this happening. Okay? The people asking things that the people who are answering don't know, but all they're trying to do is catch them up, catch them up, catch them up. Right? And that's what's going on here. The witnesses are rising up and they're trying to catch him. But he says, they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of our soul, my soul. And here's where David says something interesting. He says, what was my attitude toward them? What was my attitude toward them? He says, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. This is how he was toward them. When they were sick, this is how he was toward Saul. And how are we toward our enemies? How are we toward those who would contend with us without a cause? Do we be silent? Do we pray? The wicked are so wicked that they, they lie. They give evil as payment for good. He said, when I, when I was stumbling, they rejoiced. They gathered together to rejoice and slander, to jest and feast, to gnash their teeth at him. Now I want to propose to you that these are people who otherwise would have no reason to gather together. Okay? Those who oppose those who've been approved by God have no other reason to be connected to one another and need no other reason than that they hate those who are approved by God. And they'll gather together and make a party of it. They'll make a party of biting and chewing and gossiping and gnashing and conniving to destroy those who are approved by God. Have you ever heard the phrase, water finds its level? Ever heard that phrase? Do you know that in ancient construction work, they would dig a pit to prepare a foundation? And they didn't have uh, automatically leveling lasers, you know, with signs on beep, 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 you know, whenever you got just a perfect level and you could mark that spot. They didn't have that. So they dig a pit and they would fill it half full of water. And then water finds its level. They would go around the edges of the pit and they would mark all the way around the edges the level of the water and then they'd remove the water. And guess what? All of those marks were the same height. And they had, they had a, a guide for a perfect elevation, right? Well, wicked people who oppose those approved by God will find their level. 
They'll find, they'll find someone to affix themselves to who is like them in order to participate in their mischief. And then they'll do mischief together. They'll gather together to do this mischief and to oppose God's people without cause. They might not even know the people. Saul knew David, but how many people were pursuing David that didn't even know him? How many people gathered together to wag their tongues about David that weren't even acquainted with him? How many people gathered together and wagged their tongues about God's approved people in the world today who don't even know the particular people that they're wagging their tongues against? Many, many. Because water finds its, finds its level. Verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I don't know, there's another place in the Psalms where it talks about rescuing the soul from the lions. But is this where my soul among lions comes from? Do you remember, An Andrew? It, it's the other reference, isn't it? Yeah, because the other one is a little bit more clear. But you have the same concept. Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions, and I'll give you thanks in the congregation. Don't then, don't let them wrongfully rejoice. Verse 21, they open their mouth wide against me and say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. And this is the accusation. This is the false accusation. Verse 20, they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. Um, I don't know how true this is. I often think that um, there's there a reason that people who are conservative in their lives, um, you don't hear them, hear from them very much. I think that they're quiet in the land. I think people who are conservative um, basically generally give themselves to uh, working and tending their responsibilities. And so they don't make very good activists. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're not just, they're just not very good activists. They are those who are quiet in the land. And there's a way in which that God has looked at us and said that he expects us to be those who are quiet in the land. And I don't mean that we don't speak. What I mean by that is that um, uh, we are hardworking and we tend to our responsibilities. We live godly in this world. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Well, it's another place where those who contend without cause will find fault. Just like we see that in our culture around us, people, the, the quiet people in the land are, are hated. <laughs> really, they are. And the further, the more you get to the people, the the people who are uh, ambitious toward um, 
stamping out the quiet people, the more you realize that you're nearing those contenders without cause. Judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Judge me, O Lord my God. Well, this is another one of those awkward places. Um, just don't show your hands, because if you'd raise them, I don't know that I'd believe you. How many of you ever prayed to God, judge me, Lord? Judge me. Is it an appropriate thing to pray? Apparently, it is. And apparently, it's an appropriate thing to pray in the context of being contended with falsely. Was David sinless? Is that why he felt that he could ask God to judge him? Don't need to take a poll for that. Nobody here believes David was sinless. But in the matter of Saul's pursuit of him, in the matter of him being opposed because he was approved and favored by God, David was not at fault. And so David was saying to God, judge me, Lord. I didn't provoke him. I wasn't nasty at the party. I wasn't meeting privately with guys about how I could overthrow things. Judge me. I wasn't doing this. Do not let them say in their heart, aha, our desire. We got what we wanted. Do not let them say, we've swallowed him up. I, I don't know that I can think of a better image for how someone who's wicked could rejoice over swallowing, over, over overthrowing or destroying someone favored by God than to say that they swallowed him up. He swallowed him up. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? Let them be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant. This is the first time we have an introduction in the psalm, an, a, 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 an introduction to those people who are in favor of David. All the way up to this point, David's talking about those contending with him, and he's talking about himself, and he's pleading with God to intervene. And then suddenly he introduces it by way of contrast against those who contend with him without cause. He introduces those who delight in the prosperity God gives to those he approves of. And this is, as I said earlier, the indication of what it was that Saul didn't like about David in the first place and what it was that most people don't like about 
most Christians who live godly. I have commented before about people that I know who are opposed by uh, ungodly people. And of course, I, uh, I know that none of us is without sin, and the people that I know that are opposed because of, uh, as they're uh, attacked by ungodly people, are, are, are not without sin, right? And so, what I always think about is how strange it is that those who attack them don't attack them for their actual sin. Do you follow what I'm saying? They attack them for the points at which they're faithful. They don't ever attack them for their sin. They attack them for the, at the points at which they're faithful. It's so ironic. But it, it is in complete harmony with Psalm 35. Because those who oppose those who are approved by God hate everyone approved by God and hate every action that uh, 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 belies the fact that someone is approved by God. And so that's, those are the things they attack. They attack the, the godly at the point of their faithfulness and not at the point of their sin. And verse 28, my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. The psalmist ends with a promise to God, I will praise you. Well, you could be someone has, who, this morning here who, who has no one contending with you. And if you have no one contending with you, um, and I don't mean on Facebook, okay? If you have no one contending with you, you should be concerned. You, could be, you should be concerned that you're not exhibiting godliness. And you say, well, I, I'm, I live a quiet life. I, you know, you just said you, you live a quiet life. And I, say, and I say, I have a family. My wife has a family. We interact with people. We know people. You know people. At your relative's Christmas party, you should have people that you know disapprove of you in some way because of your godliness. I mean, all of us. You could be someone here who has people that contend against you, but they're doing it with just cause. <laughs> and the, then the, the prescription is you need to repent of being such a nasty person, as I and we often need to do. You could be one who contends without cause. And that's a horrible place to be. Perhaps you can think of times when you've gathered with little groups of other contenders and had a little bit of a, a tooth gnashing about somebody. <clears throat> you 
You could be someone who rejoices at the prosperity of those who are favored by God. And that is what we ought to be. Not only we ought to be those who bear the, the marks of those who are approved by God, but we ought to be rejoicing with those who do and giving thanks to God for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for David and the psalm. We pray that you will give us love for your word, especially at those points that uh, prick our hearts, that you would cause us to be godly in this life, that we would be useful to you. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.